Now, I'm told that Billy worked for an engineering firm, and this engineering firm decided to send him uh, to Ireland to an electronics plant on a two-year assignment. Billy was very excited about this assignment because it would allow him to earn enough money to finally marry his fiance Betty, who lived in Tennessee. So they texted each other often, back and forth. But after long, um, they, they, you know, they were missing each other, and the loneliness started setting in, and also the mistrust on Betty's part, because Billy would often send uh, pictures. Um, that showed himself in the company of many attractive Irish women. And so Betty registered her concern in one of the texts that she sent to Billy. Billy texted back saying, I want you to know that sometimes I am in fact tempted, but I am saving myself for you. Soon, Billy received a package from Betty and this package contained a, a, a harmonica. Uh, Betty wanted Billy to use this harmonica to keep his mind off of the women. And so she said, I'm sending this to you so you can learn to play it and have something to take your mind off of these women. Billy texted back saying, I am in fact practicing on my harmonica and I'm thinking of you. Now, at the end of his two-year stint in Ireland, Billy was excited to be uh, redeployed back to the United States, back to Tennessee, and he could not contain the excitement of finally being in the arms of Betty once again. But as he rushed forward to embrace her, Betty held up her hand and saying, hold on there, Billy boy. No serious hugging and kissing in here until I hear you play that harmonica. <laughs> you see, the evidence was in the playing. Show me the evidence. That was the cry of the person in today's text. I need evidence before I can believe. And so we're in the book of John chapter 20. We're taking a little bit of a diversion away from Luke for a little bit. We're in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them, meaning the other disciples, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. Some versions say, do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now believe it or not, there is only one point of the message this morning. The goal of scripture is that you believe. Now, if you had to give an eyewitness account to any event whatsoever, the primary thing on your mind would be that the people who were listening to that eyewitness account would, in fact, believe you. Every eyewitness wants to be believed. So the primary concern that John has as he's writing this um, gospel, if you will, is that he wants his readers to believe in the resurrection, to believe that, in fact, Jesus was really the Son of God, that Jesus really did perform miracles, that he really was crucified for our sins, that he really was buried, and that he really was, in fact, raised from the dead. John wants you to believe, to believe Jesus. Now, that's why he uses the word believe more than 80 times in his gospel. 80 times. Wants you to believe. And so here are just a few of the verses in which uh, John uses the word believe. Remember that he uses it more than 80 times. I'm using just about four of them. Now, while he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Secondly, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Here's a third. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Fourth. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John really wants his readers to believe. When you believe something according to the scriptures, you entrust yourself to that thing or that person. You believe with or without evidence. What we notice in John's account this morning is that it is not without evidence. He, he provides it. There is the empty tomb. There is Mary Magdalene's testimony of seeing Jesus alive. There's Peter and John's account of entering the tomb and finding the napkins and the linen folded up, but no body whatsoever. There is the evidence of Jesus appearing to his disciples. We sang about that this morning, showing them his scars and showing them his wounds. Now, that should have been enough evidence for Thomas, don't you think? And yet, that wasn't enough. Thomas wanted his own experience. He wanted his own miracle. He wanted to see for himself. He wanted to handle the nail scars and the wounds for himself. 
He says, show me the evidence. Because unless I see it, I'm not going to believe. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Thomas. We know that he was a twin. He had a twin brother. We also know that he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And apparently, Thomas had been very committed to Jesus Christ. In fact, so committed to him that he was, in fact, willing to take a bullet for him. Well, there were no bullets around in those days, but he was, he was willing to die for him. How do I know? Because in John chapter 11 and verse 16, this is what he says to his fellow disciples. As Jesus was going into a very hostile region of Judah, Thomas says to them, let us go that we may also die with him. Very committed. If you're willing to die for somebody else, that you, you're really committed. However, there is such a thing as a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith. Now, a crisis can be a game changer for many. Crisis of faith. Because you see, when that happens, it causes us to begin to doubt our faith. It may even cause us to withhold our faith. It may cause us to change our tune about the person in whom we believe, Jesus Christ himself, that is. And so Thomas experiences a crisis of faith. And what we see happening to him is that he begins to waver in his faith. He begins to doubt. And so when Jesus is arrested, Thomas runs for his life. Remember that earlier he had been willing to die for Jesus. Now that this crisis hits, he's running for his life. On Good Friday, as Jesus is crucified, we see Thomas watching from a distance. He doesn't want to identify too closely with Jesus. Now we call him Doubting Thomas because we remember him more for his doubts than for his belief. That's interesting that you kind of remember somebody more because of their doubting than because of their faith. It's not easy to believe something that can be proven. I'm sorry, it is not difficult, I'm sorry, to believe something that is proven. Now, in Thomas's cases, it is not that he doesn't have the evidence. It is there. It is not that the evidence wasn't credible. It's that Thomas's doubts were stronger than the evidence. It's not that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, it's that Thomas doesn't see how something like that could have happened. Now when we have doubts, we can pray this prayer as was prayed by this parent who brings his son to Jesus and to Jesus' disciples and his disciples couldn't cure him. And then Jesus comes and cures the son of um, his demonic oppression his epilepsy, whatever he was struggling with. And then he prays this, Lord, I want to believe. Please help me to believe. In other words, I don't really yet have quite the faith to believe as I should, but even in my doubts, would you help my unbelief? Help me to believe. Thomas could have prayed that prayer, and Jesus would have answered it. 
But here we find Jesus working with Thomas, with Thomas even in the face of his doubts. Even as he is desiring evidence, Jesus gives him the exact evidence that he needs. Jesus says to him, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. In other words, Thomas Step out from where you are. Step out from your place of unbelief, of disbelief, of doubts. We find that Thomas becomes so overwhelmed by the evidence that this was his response. My Lord and my God. Now I want you to note that this is not some light thing that Thomas says because he's amazed at what happens. Sometimes we have this way of, of um, disrespectfully uh, shouting this thing out as my God or whatever uh, in amazement. This is, not, this is not what Thomas is doing here. What Thomas is doing here is that he becomes the very first person in scripture to put these two affirmations of faith Together, These are confessions that he's making, something he's declaring with his mouth. My Lord and my God. Now it is one thing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and God, but it is another thing to acknowledge him as my Lord and my God. It is one thing to acknowledge Jesus as the Lord of the universe, and that he is. It is another thing to acknowledge him as the Lord of my heart and life. It is one thing to acknowledge Jesus as the Lord out there. It's another thing to acknowledge him as Lord of here. It's one thing to acknowledge Jesus as the man upstairs or the Lord up above as we sometimes do. It is another thing to acknowledge him as my personal Lord. Because you see, when we do that, we're not saying that we own Jesus. When we say that he's my Lord, we're not saying that we own him. We're saying that he owns us. Can I say that again? We don't own Jesus at all, but he owns us. And whatever it is that he wants us to do, we are at his disposal. So Lord, if you want me to serve here or in whatever capacity, I will serve you here. If you want me to go there, I will go because you are my Lord, you are my master. If you're asking this thing of me, I will willingly give it up even though I don't quite want to. Because you say so and because you're my Lord, I will do it. Now there's a, an anonymous poem that describes the wide gap between what we say and what we really mean. In fact, this poem was written in the voice of Jesus himself. So somebody is writing this poem as if Jesus himself were actually saying it to us. Here it goes. You call me master, but obey me not. You call me light, but see me not. You call me way, but follow me not. You call me life, but desire me not. You call me wise, but you acknowledge me not. 
You call me fair, but love me not. You call me rich, but ask me not. You call me eternal, but seek me not. You call me gracious, but trust me not. You call me noble, but serve me not. You call me mighty, but honor me not. You call me just, but fear me not. And then these are Jesus' own words. If I condemn you, blame me not. So there's usually a gap between what we say and what we really mean. And I believe that this message is calling us to narrow this gap. So there's no gap between what we confess and what we actually profess, what we actually do. And so believing something that is based on the evidence is not really hard to do. If the evidence is before you and you can see it and you can examine it for yourself and you know that it is reliable, it's not difficult to believe that at all. But believing when you have no evidence, that is another matter. The Bible calls that faith. And this is how the Bible describes or defines faith. Faith is being confident of what you don't see. And we find in the Bible a list of ordinary people who believed God even when they had no evidence whatsoever. And so Abel, Adam's son, he brought a better sacrifice to God from his flock than his brother Cain did, and God received his sacrifice. Enoch walked with God even though those around him were not doing so, nor obeyed God and built a ridiculously huge ark that it took 120 years to build. Abraham departed from his country and went with God to a place that he had no idea where he was going, but he trusted God. Moses, well, even before we get to Moses, uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, uh, believed God, even though she initially doubted. She believed God that even though she was past menopause, past the age when she could have children, that she would, in fact, conceive and bear a son. Moses' parents looked at him and realized that he was a really goodly child. That's how the Bible describes him. They believed that God had a plan and a purpose for Moses' life, and so they defied the king and hid him uh, on, in, a, in, a, in a basket on the Nile River because they believed God had a purpose for his life. They had no evidence. They couldn't see, yet they believed. And then Moses, when he became of age, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to endure enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Here's my question to you. What ridiculous thing that you have done can you point to to show that you in fact believe in a God that you can see? Is there one thing in your life that you can point to that is ridiculous but you have done it anyway because you believe in a God that you can't see? Ponder that question and let that question sink in. Let it really serve to show you whether you really believe God or not. So Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. 
And so to, to be acknowledged for believing something based on the evidence, that is good. But to be blessed, to be blessed even without, for believing even without the evidence, that is a really good thing. And that is what, in fact, Jesus says that blessed are those who, despite having no evidence, still believe. And so the Apostle Paul would teach us um, that believing in Jesus is a combination of something that takes place in the heart and then you declare it with your mouth. And so in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, Paul writes this, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So what takes place in the heart is that you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And what you declare with your mouth is that Jesus is, in fact, not just the Lord, but that he is my Lord. And when we believe in our heart and declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, Paul says that the result of that is that you are justified. Now, that is a legal term that means that God declares you to be righteous. So all of us were guilty of sin, but because of God's grace and because of our faith in him, he declares us to be righteous based on the fact that we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And because of that confession, we are saved, which means that God acquits us or he forgives us of our sin. And so Paul explains what this idea of justification means in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. He says, therefore, as one trespass or as one sin led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that would be Adam, the many were made sinners, that would be us, so by, the, by one man's obedience, that is Jesus Christ, the many, that is us, will be made righteous. So God declares us to be righteous. And so the goal of belief is that you and I might be justified and saved as we affirm, like Thomas, my Lord and my God. I want to say to us this morning that Jesus appeared to Thomas in person. But today he is appearing to us through John's eyewitness account. Thomas said then to Jesus, my Lord and my God, and John wants us to come to the same affirmation as well, to affirm Jesus as my Lord and my God. And so John continues to, to share that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. There are too many to be included, John is, is um, suggesting. 
But these that I have written, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so John wants us to know for a fact that believing in Jesus guarantees us eternal life. And so the life that John is talking about here is not bios in the Greek or simply biological life. He's talking about eternal life. Life that never ends. The same life that Jesus had when he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. The same life that he promised to Mary after her brother Lazarus had died. In John eleven twenty five to 26, Jesus says this to Mary. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Eternal life. I want to close with this quotation from Charles Spurgeon. He writes this, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not to believe at all. Believe this book of God, the Bible, every letter of it or else reject it. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the depths of divine revelation. A faith that paddles about the edge of the water is poor faith at best and is not good for much. So he's inviting us to swim in the depths of our belief in God, of faith in him. Here's the bottom line of our message this morning. Believing that Jesus is the son of God guarantees you eternal life. I want to close this message with three application points, the first of which is going to be a little bit different from the ones I usually give. I want us to confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, I want not only those who have never done that to confess that for the first time, but I want those of us who have confessed that to be able to reconfess that, if you will, reaffirm our faith in the fact that Jesus is not only Lord, but that he is my Lord and my God. And so as we heard last week, confession is something that you do um, with your mouth after you have done something in your heart, which is to believe. And when you make that confession, the Bible tells us that God forgives us of our sin, that God receives us as his children, and that God grants us the hope of eternal life. Now let's remember that all of this is a gift. We don't work for it. We can't earn it. This is something that God gives to us. But it hinges upon our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I want to ask you this morning, everybody here, whether you have ever done it or never done it, for those who have never done it, would you go ahead and confess that Jesus is Lord? For those of you who have, would you go ahead and in the privacy of your heart, make that confession again? Renew it. Secondly, 
I want to challenge you to be honest with God about your doubts. Now, Christians have doubts too. So is it that only I who have doubts then? <laughs> Even with faith, faith and doubt can coexist, you know. And God never condemns us for our doubts at all. Now, we may not doubt his resurrection. We may believe it. But I'm sure that we sometimes doubt our salvation. We doubt God's love for us. We sometimes doubt whether God will really come through for us or not. We sometimes doubt whether God would ever get us out of this particular situation that we're in. So I want to challenge you this morning to be honest with God about your doubts. He knows about them anyway, so you might as well go ahead and, and confess them. Tell him that you really want to believe, but you're not really there yet. So would you please, Lord, help my inability to believe? I want to challenge you this morning to bring your doubts to Jesus and let him reassure you that all things are possible to the one who believes. And then finally, I want to challenge you to trust God even when you can't trace him. I'm told that a man was falling from a very high cliff, and as he was falling, he barely managed to stretch out his hand and grab a branch so that he would not fall to his death below. And so he yells out, Is there anyone up there? Yes, came the reply. Who are you? he asked. I am God, and I'm going to save you. Wonderful, he says. What should I do? Let go of the branch, God responds. There's a pause before he says, Is there anyone else up there? <laughs> Sometimes God requires you to let go. Let go of everything that you hold on to securely. Now, he may not ask all of us to do that, but sometimes he specifically asks us, let go of that thing that you're holding on to for dear life and you're trusting in that. You have your security wrapped up in that. Let it go. Because you see, we can never serve God with a closed fist. Closed fists are meant to punch people. You can only serve God with an open fist. Whatever God gives to you, hold it loosely and lightly with an open hand so that God can take it away from you at any time. There's a well-known hymn which we seldom sing anymore, and it goes like this. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his goodwill, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. The refrain goes like this, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So be honest with your doubts and trust God even when you can't trace him, when you can't see him. Let us pray together. God, we thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you, God, most importantly, for the transformation that you have wrought in our lives that now convinces us 
that our faith in you is well-founded. You have provided all the evidence that we need to believe, Lord, and we believe in you. And we confess you to be our Lord and our God. Whatever you say to us this week, we want to be willing to do. Wherever you send us, we want to be willing to go because indeed we confess you to be Lord. And if you are Lord of our lives, then that which you ask us to do, we will do. God, give us the grace to trust you even in times that are difficult. Even when it seems, Lord, that you're far away, that, you, that our prayers are not being heard, that you're not answering fast enough, that you make us stay longer in our grief, in our um, difficulty, in our trial than we want to be. Help us still to trust and to believe that you're able. And God, help us also to declare you as Lord to our neighbors, to our friends, so that they too might come to confess you as my Lord and my God. In Jesus' name we pray.